It's a small copper box, ornate and inlaid with an intricate pattern. I pick it up and turn it in my hands. He bought it in the Middle East. That sounds exotic, but there was nothing exotic about the Middle East campaigns or what happened afterwards. Curled inside is a watch, his watch. I take it out. The nylon band might once have been black but has faded to grey with sweat and the passing decades, and the buckle is corroded. The watch face is stained and the hands are stopped at 3.15. I remember him telling me it stopped when he dived overboard after the ship had been bombed. I know now that was when the troubles really began. I put the watch back in the box, gently lock the clasp and sit looking at it for a long time. That watch will give you something to think about, son. There's a few clues in there about what happened. 3.15, eh? And don't get too hung up about what time the hand stopped. Things are never that clear cut. Yeah, well, it's all marked pretty well. Mm. That was um, not long before he died. That was um, probably about 1970. This one, I remember, was... Uh fairly common, he would sort of often get around this sort of gear. Yeah, yeah. and like to have the collar turned up, he was mm. sort of fairly jacker. How would I describe my father? Two very different people, really. When he was well, he was a kind and loving person. When he was ill, the illness and dealing with it consumed him in a way. So you weren't dealing with the same sort of person. And then when he was really crook, you know, it was just a sort of shaking, um, you know, mess. It wasn't the person you knew as your father, really. His illness was described as resulting from the war, as resulting from being bombed, and even to the extent of having a piece of shrapnel in his head. The constant and terrible pain in his head was given a name, trigeminal neuralgia. That didn't mean too much to me as a young guy, I guess, but I was absolutely aware of what the pain meant. It was uh, a really, really awful thing for him to deal with and to deal with constantly. He had a lot of trouble with his balance would cause him to fall. In the middle of the night, it made a terrifying sound. That was just one impact of his illness. There's many others. With the ambulance comes sweet relief. No siren, please. Its flashing lights work their way across the lounge room wall. A stretcher and a trolley are brought inside. A pale figure wrapped in a blanket, whiskery, his face too sore to shave, is wheeled out of the bedroom. The boy's up now, dressing gown pulled roughly across his shoulders. He reaches out for the man on the trolley to squeeze his hand as he's wheeled away. The man sees a hand and takes it briefly, lifting his head. 
Ah, just a little. No words needed now. No words to say. Lying in his darkened room, the child had been listening as she coaxed his father back to the bedroom. He's unsteady on his feet, very unsteady. His mother tries to guide him, but he bangs against the wall as he goes. She knows that if she lets him go, he will fall. Not crumple down, but pitch forward onto his face. If that happens, he may cut himself, probably over his eye where it has happened before, blood dripping. And she knows from bitter experience that if he does fall, he will become even more combative. At such moments, she thinks he might not know where he is or even who he is. This is not the man she pledged her life to. For 30 years I've been thinking about all this. Avoiding it, to be honest. But I can't go much further without finding out what happened to him and the way that it hurt our family. This journey starts with photos and letters that were kept locked in a tin box painted black. Him in the army. Mates with their rifles. Canvas tents somewhere in a desert and plenty of smiles. It's 1940. One of the letters in the box is typed and unsigned. It's about the bombing of a ship called the SS Hellas in April 1941 in Piraeus Harbour in Athens. I still don't know for sure who wrote it. At the time of the bombing, I was on the main deck in the forward part of the ship with a number of other members of my unit who were killed instantly. Furthermore, I did not leave this portion of the ship until I had thrown overboard every wounded man that the flames would allow me to assist. There are medical records too. Seven big fat files stamped deceased in the Department of Veterans Affairs. They tell a large part of his story, but not the part I thought I knew. As I flick through the files, instead of finding more about the physical injuries he suffered during the war, I'm confronted by medical reports that talk about nerves and neurosis. 24th of August 1941. Patient Staff Sergeant John Parrish admitted yesterday to 7th Australian General Hospital, Palestine. The patient complains of abdominal pain, with diarrhoea up to six times a day. He says he has been rather nervy since his evacuation from Greece in May this year. September 1942. Patient Staff Sergeant John Parrish admitted reporting stomach pain, diarrhoea and chronic vomiting. He has recently returned from the Middle East and has lost a stone in weight in the last 12 months. He says he is feeling very nervy and unable to sleep and at times has difficulty in stopping himself from screaming. Noises worry him. Even a slight noise becomes accentuated. Diagnosis? Chronic hypertrophic gastritis. January 1943. Staff Sergeant John Parrish discharged from the army. He has cracked up many times due to a disability not disclosed on enlistment. March 1955. Report to Repatriation Commission upon the incapacity of J. Parrish. Diagnosis? Hysteria. 
February 1961. Relevant symptoms. Letter from local medical officer Dr. Morris Goldman. Constitutionally unable to cope. Mr. Parrish has developed depressive psychosis with remorse for failing during war. Has lost interest in August 1965. And concerns himself with his pain and depressive thoughts. Since discharge recently from hospital, this patient has become increasingly difficult. Life has become intolerable for his wife, who has to support two children. And I would be grateful if something more positive could be done for Mr. Parrish on this admission, particularly psychiatrically. Neurotic, hysteric, and a complete psychopath. The words stung me. I was shocked and hurt. This wasn't the father I knew. The corrosive mix of time and memory has blurred the fine details for me. But I remember a man who taught me how to fish and bowl a good leg break. I still cherish the ballroom dancing trophies he won, Shearer's Waltz, and cartoons he drew with a fine cross-hatching. Anyway, there was one thing for certain. I was always told his problems were physical, nothing else. So what were the files all about? Now, more than ever, I needed to know what my father had gone through all those years ago. It's January 1940, and you're leaving on a troop ship bound for the Middle East. You're young and fit, and I see you out on deck leaning over the rail, watching Sydney slip by, cigarette in hand, always a cigarette. I wondered if I could show you some photos because I don't quite know where to start, but um, from what you've said and from what I've learned, this would be a fairly typical scene. There's a truck, a bunch of blokes there, including my father, and some drums of something or other. Yeah, I can see John there. I can associate the cigarette with John. He enjoyed his smoking. Champion Ruby, fine cut. The, in the yellow packet, uh, with yeah. the red lettering. Yeah, yeah. Can you remember when you when you first met him and where that was? It would have been in Palestine, uh, in all probability in the sergeant's mess there. Now, I don't think he's killerly, but uh, I had a reputation as an eating man... I never knew it until I got back home in 1945, but my nickname was Cannibal Kid. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I never heard of John having any notoriety of those uh, types. Mm. He was a, a good, solid citizen sort of thing. This was the uh, uh, thing with John. Uh, a good, solid citizen. That doesn't sound like the man described in the files. Tom Kidd is one of the old blokes helping me piece together my father's story. They're all well into their 80s now and still very sharp. Tom spent four years as a prisoner of war in Germany. He replied to an ad we put in the paper and I couldn't believe it when he said he'd known my father. Well, that's incredible. Here you've got... 
the anniversary dinner in Palestine, and it's signed by my father. Ah, well... <laughs> got his, look at that. <laughs> yeah. That's well, incredible. That's where I may have uh, got the idea that it was, he was a good uh, handwriter. Maybe I was sitting next to John. Yes. They were both staff sergeants in the same division, the Fighting Sixth. You've got the most uh, comprehensive record here. Not in the infantry. They were in the supply column, shifting food, petrol, ammo and everything else around. <laughs> Every day there was a dust storm and it got into everything. You just could not uh, escape it. But it was a good place for a war. Now, that sounds silly. Here's uh, poor old Iraq. Uh, the place is just flattened. In the desert, there's nothing there to flatten. Palestine, Badia, Benghazi, Tobruk. The 6th Division fought its way across North Africa and into history. Italian aircraft I could have listened to Tom for hours more. He documented his time in the desert with careful notes and lovingly cared for photo albums. But our research had turned up the name of the ship that my father was on when it was bombed in the harbour in Athens, the SS Hellas. What I don't know is how John came to, uh, and the crowd that he was with, the 16th Brigade, uh, were they on the Hellas when it was blown up? He was on it. He was on it? Yeah. Um, and that's part of the history we've been looking at. Right. And I think primarily as a result of that bombing, uh, he suffered psychological damage, I'm fairly sure. <laughs> and um, there'd be a bit of I that. shouldn't laugh. <laughs> but, uh, you're dead scared. You see this plane coming down at you and uh, uh, firing machine guns and you see the bombs. Uh, right, I was scared to death. Yeah. And subsequent to the bombing of the Hellas, he spent quite a deal of time in the military hospitals and after the war increasingly you know, had a set of difficulties that were came from that bombing, I think, largely. Oh, yeah. um, that went on right up until the time he died. Hmm. Well, you're getting some of the picture. But don't think that's all there is to it. Things were a lot more complicated than that. Silence. Sleep is so precious they must draw a bath with a face washer over the tap so the sound of running water will not wake him. There is a sign on the front door to stop anyone knocking. Please go round the back. Silence. An intruder is in their midst and cannot be turned out. She will never admit to outsiders or even to herself that the family is struggling to hold together. To concede this, this presence tightening grip, this will take her to the edge. And what then? No. Bone-weary, she will fight on. She bears this burden and does not complain. Come on, son. Time for bed. You can have the dog sleep in your room if you like. The young boy looks at her, nods, and then slowly goes to his room in silence.
shattered. Complicated story, really. I don't know where to start. Application for pension, 11th of February, 1943. To the Deputy Commissioner of Repatriation. Sir, it is now approximately one month since I was discharged from the 114th Australian General Hospital. I find that despite the more careful selection of diet, intermittent vomiting still occurs and it is invariably slightly stained and flecked with what appears to be blood. These periods are signalled by the nerves of my stomach getting wretchedly out of hand and are followed by very frequent periods of exhaustion and a faintness which precludes my moving about for more than an hour or so at a stretch. The symptoms and conditions are generally the same as that which has recurred so often since I was blown up on the Hellas in Port Piraeus, Greece in April 1941. My main object in seeking this pension is to have time to regain my health and strength sufficiently to take on once again the support of my mother and self. 30th of April, 1943. Dear Mr Parrish, after full consideration of all the evidence, the Repatriation Board has accepted osteochondritis of your right foot as being attributable to your war service and assessed pensionable incapacity arising therefrom at 10% rate. The board, however, was unable to accept hypertrophic gastritis and mild neurosis as attributable to war service. The examining doctors found that the gastritis existed pre-war and was not aggravated by war service, and that your mild neurosis was constitutional and not related to your war service. You are therefore ineligible to receive repatriation benefits in respect thereof. Yours faithfully, R.W. Carswell, Deputy Commissioner of Repatriation. I think there's many stories that emerge from the files, but the one that really stands out for me is that there's a phenomenal battle going on. My father is battling over all those years to have his injuries recognised as being caused by the war. At the same time, the files reflect an incredible internal battle, of course, that he must be having with himself to, to try and fathom what's happening to him, both psychologically and physically, but also to to fathom with the way the medical system is dealing with him. You can see the way he writes the letters and uh, in a lot of ways almost pleading for help. Would you please advise what steps I should take to alleviate a condition that has developed into chronic vomiting? I am anxious to resume my place in civil life, but this disorder has the effect of keeping me in bed for several days of each week. He's also having a battle, of course, with the repatriation system and the availability of compensation and, you know, the recognition that this was caused by the war because after 13 years since he's returned from the war, he's finally retired from the public service. It is with regret that this step is considered expedient, for I have in mind the sterling service given by you since you joined this department on the 18th of April, 1945. Your sincerely, R.W. Carswell. So he was out of the workforce now. Fourteen years after the Hellas, my dad, conscientious as ever, is not able to work anymore, and this has a terrible impact on his self-esteem. June 1955. Mr Parrish is suffering serious mental disorder and is not fit to be out of hospital. 
His wife tells me she found a large knife. However this may be interpreted, it bespeaks a mental condition which is incompatible with a life outside an institution. He's talking in veiled terms of suicide and is at present under the influence of barbiturates. When things really go downhill from there, his condition deteriorates. He's admitted to hospital far more frequently and for longer terms, it seems. Doctors pick up on his situation. No one seems to be presenting with a comprehensive plan for helping him. That's the great tragedy of this. I mean, just as I flick through the files, the battle's underway. The one note here says, uh, there should be no part pension in this condition. Such payments only serve to maintain invalidity. And I've written in the margins there how to survive. He couldn't work in this condition. At the head of the file is the note that uh, cause hereditary hereditary factor factor is probable. It's just rubbish and it's symptomatic of the medical and psychological system at the time. So many doctors over so many years. I'll tell you something. There's plenty of clues in the files about what was really going wrong with me. I told them the same thing for 30 years. One of the most incredible things, and quite shocking in a way, there are even the negatives photos that were taken of his eyes when he went to see a doctor about getting some new glasses. Can you imagine when I'm sitting there going through these files and you come across some slides of your father's eyes and all of the memories of those eyes come flooding back and what immediately came back were... They were discoloured because he wasn't a well man and the eyes looked sort of sad in a way, resigned. Sometimes the war would come into the house in other ways. Once, when his father was ill, the boy sat quietly on the green felt chair opposite his bed. They'd been talking, but his dad had fallen into a fitful sleep. His breathing quickened and he began to sweat. He tossed and turned. Up that ridge. Watch out. Get down. The boy was scared and didn't know what to do. He got up and shook his dad's shoulder. His eyes half opened and then he just turned over and went back to sleep, breathing steady now. On the dressing table stood a small copper box with fine brass hinges and Egyptian markings. Inside was an old watch with a sweat-stained strap. Sometimes, whenever his father was in hospital, he'd open the box, take out the watch, and just sit there, turning it over and over in his hands. With his father sick, it seemed like the war was still with them and just would not let them go. The soldier settlement was just down the road at Kingsford. Kingsford seemed like a quiet suburb. Sometimes he'd cycle past the houses and then turn back and slowly ride the other way. These houses were built for those who'd returned from the First War. Solid brick, wide and strong, a world away from Gallipoli and the Somme. 
Down the road was Lone Pine Parade, Posiers Avenue, further along El Alamein Crescent. He wondered if the dreams of the men who lived there were like his dad's, and what of their families, a thousand men wrestling with the night, a whole suburb. They talk to me about them yellow nose fellas. <laughs> Herman Circus. Hitler's <laughs> bombers strike hard and often. Well, there's one notorious stretch of road. It was about, oh, say, 15 miles. Flat as a tack. Well, they had a picnic. <laughs> they were all over the plate. And they only had one target, that was the road. We were all on the road. Memories of the Greek campaign undimmed by the passing decades. Ned Dusting and his men were sitting ducks for the German planes. He was in the 6th Division supply column like my father, but they apparently never met. Before I met Ned, I had only the vaguest notion that things hadn't gone so well for the diggers and their allies. Well, we probably had one division. There was a few New Zealand blokes, uh, a few British tanks... Well, they lasted until about lunchtime, I think. Not really, but <laughs> you could say that. You know, one day and they were finished, the tanks. And they had about five panzer divisions. And I don't know how many other infantry divisions they had. Oh, hell yes. We were outnumbered ten to one or something like that. The Greek campaign was a disaster from start to finish. And no surprise to people in power. General Blamey sent a cable to Canberra well before the fighting started, saying in part, Military operation extremely hazardous in view of the disparity between opposing forces in numbers and training. But the campaign went ahead anyway, and the outnumbered diggers got hammered as the German forces swept in from the north of Greece. We were bomb-happy. <laughs> We'd been bombed for about six months without hitting back and dodging and hiding. You know, it affected us. Blokes sort of went off their rocker a bit, you know, to say that now, we had blokes when we got back to Palestine after the Grecian treat, wouldn't sleep on a bed. Just to sleep under it. One of my mates shot himself. Like after the Grecian treat, you know, he was a bit jumpy and and, uh, there must be something in this post-traumatic stress, I can tell you, <laughs> for a bloke rather to shoot himself. Uh, I can tell you it's not a very pleasant job burying blokes. Don't tell blokes killed where you are. Hasn't done me any good, I can assure you. Oh, you're irritable and mad, and but you've got to try and hang on. I get up every night, two o'clock, walk around. I know in my father's case that uh, loud noises would really send him off. Yeah. Mine's sort of a, up here. I call them the demons up here. <laughs> the little men up in here. Yeah, you know, just lie awake and think and so they get up and have a walk around and a Panadol and trying to think of something else. I won't sleep tonight. No way in the world. 
It's not often you hear these brave old diggers talking publicly about what happened to them. And somewhere in the middle of a desperate fighting retreat was my father, Staff Sergeant John Parrish. I don't know how he got there, but by the 24th of April 1941, my dad was in Athens at Port Piraeus and about to be evacuated on a ship called the SS Hellas. I knew nothing about this, didn't even know the name of the ship until I'd found the unsigned letter in the black tin box. I was was on the the main deck in the the forward forward part of the ship ship, with a number of other members of my unit unit who who were killed killed instantly. The vessel immediately caught fire and in a very short time was a blazing inferno midship. Here was a clue to a mystery I'd been pondering for 30 years. Were these his words? Or were they written by one of the other men? I wondered if there was anyone still alive who'd been on the Hellas. Maybe they'd even seen my father. My name is Ron Hartman. I enlisted in 1939 in the RAF at the given age of 20, actually 16. I was a member of the 2nd 1st Field Regiment, 6th Division, and I served through uh, the Libyan campaign and the Greek campaign and I was also on the ship bombed by the uh, Germans called the Hellas uh, where there was 1,200 people on board and only 205 uh, survived. I took photos of my father and decades worth of questions round to Ron Hartman's place in Sydney. That photo is interesting because it's got Palestine 1940 on the back. Yeah, I got photographs like this. Yeah. Where was this, in Julius? We'd found him after several phone calls to the 6th Division Association. His house is neat and well-kept, and the events of that terrible day in 1941 are burnt into his memory. Ron was crook with malaria and had just got on board the Hellas when he looked up and saw 13 German bombers. Uh, we just dropped the lines onto the um, wharf and uh, one lot came in for a pass and uh, the... (laughs) They let their bombs go. You you could see them coming. But uh, uh, we we had nowhere to go. We could see the bombs coming and and, uh, it was just like as if you were in a slit trench. How he dropped one on the uh, rear of the stern, one on the stern, one, it looked like it was, probably went down the funnel, uh, and one on the bridge, one on the forecastle where I was, and uh, one near miss. And uh, I, I made a dive went into the passageway between the anchor locker and the paint locker. And uh, I had... Uh, 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 two or three fellows uh, 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 dead on top of me and uh, a couple of others who weren't. And we helped one another and I went on my Pat Malone to get up on the top deck. Anyhow, uh, I couldn't hear. I'd lost my hearing. Uh, I made my way up a ladder and there was no bridge left. And I went into the saloon, or where it was, one side was just blown right out 
and uh, the other side of all the windows had gone. It, there was a lot of smoke, etc. Couldn't see anybody, anybody alive. It took 16 minutes from the time that they hit the boat till the time it was gone. And uh, there's, there's 200, 205 got off alive. I was one of the lucky ones. Yeah. My father, Ron, uh, apparently he must have dived off the ship because he's given me many years ago his watch, which stopped at the time. Yeah. I suppose there must have been a lot of that going on. You would have seen a lot of likes over there. I would say he would have been down the, um, uh, down, the, down the rear of the boat. If he got in the water... Uh, he would have been very lucky, very, very lucky to have got out. No one could have survived the Hellas unscathed. Well, they call it the nervous disorder. I, I, I get a part of pension for that. Uh, it, it had had a, a lot of bearing, I think, on... Um, my um, uh, lifestyle. Uh, I get upset easily. And they, they tell me this is this is the cause of. I sat listening with a lump in my throat to Ron's story, and his understated account of how the tragedy had affected him. Another brave man wrestling with the night. Ron had peeled back the years for me and somewhere in his words lay my father's fate as well. There's not much in the official war history about the Hellas. Only one paragraph that says the day had ended disastrously and estimates of the number who died range from 500 to 742. That's less than Ron's figures, but the men who survived the Hellas wonder why more wasn't known and written about what happened. A photograph of a grave in Greece led us to a copy of an extract from the diary of Major John Kingsley. The Major was also on the Hellas. He wrote that the ship was grossly overloaded and it was suicidal, his words, to load her at the docks in broad daylight and that the loading was criminally slow and unnecessarily so. He also noted that no attempt was made to safeguard the ship from an air attack. There's no sense of any of this in the official version of what happened. Turn back, son. The official histories won't tell you much about a cock-up like that. Go deeper into my files and you might get a few answers there. A few weeks later I went back to the files in the Veterans Affairs Department in Sydney. It's a warm summer's day. Seated at a small desk, I flip haphazardly through the files. There's a letter dated 7th of May, 1943, written to the Deputy Commissioner of Repatriation. 7th of May, 1943. My eye is instantly drawn to the first line. I, John Parrish, hereby state I joined the AIF on the 20th of October, 1939. I devour the second paragraph. My, My first, first serious illness, illness after, after enlistment, enlistment occurred, occurred at Port Piraeus, Piraeus 
On April 24, 1941, when the Hellas was bombed from a low altitude by a large number of enemy planes. I feel my chest tighten. I know this will be the moment when I find out what happened to him. The force of the blast from these bombs blew me into a corner of the ship and I was conscious of a severe blow in the abdomen. When I recovered my senses, I saw that those of my mates who were in proximity had been thrown on top of me and had had their intestines blown out. I had in fact to remove the remains of one from my face. The ship was a total and flaming wreck in a few minutes. I distinctly remember vomiting blood immediately following the explosion. This vomiting of blood persisted on and off for some five and six days. I have continued to vomit substance frequently impregnated with blood ever since. I know that my present stomach condition was materially aggravated by this incident. I finish reading the letter and tears are wrenched from me. I don't want the people in the office to see this. I'm weeping for him, for our small family and all that followed. Don't cry, son. Time heals all wounds. You sure about that? In the afternoon, when the sun made its way onto the back porch, the two of them would sit talking about this or that. Nothing, really. His father was reading the paper with his shirt off, as brown as a berry, the midweek races on the radio. The boy, the father and the dog. Halfway through the afternoon, his father decided to go over to the RSL club, Matto RSL. The boy knew his father's war mates were over there and that he liked to play snooker with them. When he was gone, the child came up with a good idea. He'd get a big piece of newspaper and make a hat, an admiral's hat, and salute his father when he came back. After a couple of hours, he heard the back gate click and footsteps on the stairs. He grabbed the hat and stood hiding in the hallway. The fly screen door creaked open. This would be good. His father would laugh and probably sweep him up into his arms. He couldn't wait a second longer. He jumped out with the hat on, elbow cocked, fingers straight. Aye, aye, Captain. The perfect salute. There was something wrong. His father was there, but strange men were too. His dad was slung between them, his arms over their shoulders, his head sagging. His mother rushed past and took one of his arms. We were playing snooker and he just collapsed, said one of the men. The boy stood to one side as they took his father, feet dragging behind him, up the hall to his bedroom. Yes, war veterans home. 11th of March, 1967. Dear Jeff, I was so pleased to get your note and to hear about some of your activities. That fight at school was a turn-up. Just as well to remember not to judge a book by its cover. I would have liked more detail about your sporting activities, though. My head, which as you unfortunately know was breaking down regularly, is now going real well. If only it would keep this way, 
you and your sister would know me much better. Great affection to you and Anne, Dad. I think the search has been really beneficial, despite all the pain it's caused me and others too, I think, along the way. Uh, The other night my sister said, I forgive him for everything that happened. And, of course, I do too. Always did, in a way. The, The decades have dropped away during the course of this search and... I feel really much closer to him now. Now that I know more about what happened. And uh, that makes me love him even more. And uh, that's very comforting. I think it's really something. Something beneficial has really come out of this. You know your watch started again the other day? The one in the box. I'm not kidding. It really happened. (laughs) You wouldn't credit it, would you? It's like a piece of poetry, son. The best bits can't be explained. 